You are listening to Episode 9 of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is defined as a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. This episode is my conversation with Jess Lowry, who's the family minister at the church where I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Our stories collided when Jess showed up for me at the hospital the night Ellis was stillborn and ended up baptizing him. Since then, Jess and I have developed a deep friendship as she began to share her own story of pregnancy loss with me, which includes seven miscarriages, the stillbirth of her first rainbow baby, Ava, and three more rainbow babies, including an adopted little girl. Jess's story is full of tenacity and vulnerability, and she tells difficult details that she's never shared publicly in hopes that it will help those of you out there who are hurting to feel less alone in your pain. Jess talks about hitting rock bottom after struggling with infertility and miscarriage and finding herself on the brink of divorce and also attempting suicide. Jess's story is so powerful to me because it would be easy for an outsider to assume that she has a perfect life, which we all know doesn't really exist. But instead, Jess reveals that her life has actually been shaped in surprising ways by the dark and heavy parts of her path, that most of us would prefer to hide. Jess continues to be an inspiration to me and has helped me to better understand how God continues to be present with me through the darkness of pregnancy loss and grief. I hope her story is a guiding light for you as well. Here's our conversation. So welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And I'm really excited for you to share your story because I know it's going to have an impact on others like it's had for me Um, And our relationship has been such a blessing to me over the last year in my journey. And um, I just know that that's going to have a lot of power for other people, too, because you've been such an inspiration to me. Um, So I'd love it if you could just start at the beginning. I know your story is um, huge and there is so much to it. Um, So start when you were 19, right? Yep. And... You and Nathan were newly married, yep. um, so you can take it from okay. here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, too. This this really means a lot. Um, yeah, so I married Nathan at 19, um, met him, fell in love with him that day, and um, we were married 10 months later. Um, we fell in love because we both loved the band Pearl Jam. That was our first, nice. <laughs> our first connection. But, um, and I, I somehow instinctively just felt like having children was going to be a struggle for me. Um, um, and we, we wanted to have children young. Um, both of our parents were very young. And so we decided we were going to kind of start right away. And, um, we, we were about six months in, um, to not having any luck getting pregnant. And so went to see my OBGYN, um, was in the, um, ultrasound room where they were, you know, taking a look at things. And his words to me were, you'll never get pregnant with those ovaries, put your pants back on. Gosh. And I just, it, it was like something in me died. Like this hope of 
this future family and what I believed I, you know, was supposed to be a mother and so desperately wanted that. And this person very insensitively, you know, killed that dream and that moment for me. Um, that really caused me to hit rock bottom pretty quickly. Um, I, I felt so much shame around this idea that this thing, this, this natural process that all women are supposed to be able to do. Um, and in my, in my family dynamic, really that the message was, that's what you were created to do. Um, was, it was just devastating, um, to, to hear that kind of news and think that I couldn't do the thing my body was created to do. Um, so that sent me into a pretty serious clinical depression. Um, I, I tried to seek help, um, you know, did some medication. Um, but for the most part during that time, I was really just self-medicating with alcohol and, you know, partying and, um, and doing anything I could to try to just numb this, you know, pain that I was feeling. Um, I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of trouble sleeping because of the antidepressants that I was on. And so my doctor, uh, prescribed a anti-anxiety, uh, pill and, um, sorry, I don't (laughs) share this, um, story very often. Um, so, you know, I'm in my house and Nathan's downstairs and I have this brand new prescription of anti-anxiety pills and, I was just done. I was so done. If I couldn't be a mother, I had no reason to live. That was really, really the, the feeling in my heart. Um, and I, so I took the entire bottle of pills, um, and, and I was okay with that, you know, in that moment, um, it didn't matter to me how much I was going to hurt the people that I loved. It was, I had this pain in this hole that I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Um, nothing I did would stop, stop this pain. Um, and by this time I'm, uh, I I would say two years into infertility Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and, um, in the moment after I took those pills, I had this sense, um, for the first time in my life, um, that God of God saying in my heart, I'm right here you're not alone and I want to be with you. And in that, in that moment and, and having that feeling, it was like all of the sudden something switched, you know, I need to tell Nathan, I took these pills. I need to get help. I need to, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to say now that it switched to the point that, Oh, suddenly I was healed. Mm -hmm. And, but it start that was kind of the starting place for for that healing to to begin. Um, so, you know, was hospitalized um, because of the suicide attempt. Um, I did counseling afterwards. Um, did a lot of work in that area. Was still kind of you know still not doing very healthy behaviors as around alcohol. Um, was traveling to back to visit high school friends and, um, you know, engaging in some unhealthy behaviors still, um, I would say Mm self-sabotaging probably because that pain was still really Mm -hmm. deeply in there. Um, 
and um, got to the point where, you know, I'd made some really, really bad choices um, and nearly ruined my marriage. Um, We were, uh, we had started getting pregnant when um, the first time um, I had uh, two very large ovarian cysts. So we learned I had polycystic ovaries. Um, I had two very large ovarian cysts and they suspected potential ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, so this is about 21, um, years old. So young. Yeah. Um, and, and so I had to have a laparoscopic surgery and sign a paper that said, when we go in there, if, if we determine that this is ovarian cancer, we may have to take your ovaries. Mm. And so then my dream of was really, really, um, really gone. And, um, in the pre-surgical labs had found out that I was in fact pregnant, um, the week before the surgery, um, did a HCG test to check, you know, level of hormones and they were declining and Mm -hmm. decreasing. So, so they knew I was going to miscarry the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, so in one week, first pregnancy, which was great. Then you lose the baby. And then, oh, by the way, we're, we may take your ovaries. Um, that was, you know, it was such a hard, you know, scary, scary time. Um, and how long was that after the suicide attempt? Um, I would say, I would say maybe a year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Six months, a year. That timeline is kind of foggy at this point. Um, but yeah, I would say, I would say right around. Um, so you were still really fragile. Sure. It'd be hard yeah. for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and my marriage was in a really fragile state by this point. Um, you know, we were so young, you know, Nathan was 21. I was 19 when we got married. So we were so young and came from our parents' homes into a home that we bought and remodeled and then, and then just started this, mm-hmm. you know, um, so found out I didn't have ovarian cancer, thankfully. And, um, and I, by this time I've, I've gone to another OB, you know, and he's optimistic because I did finally get pregnant, you know, um, in the, sorry, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit, mm-hmm. but in the infertility time, um, I'm for, for people who are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram eight, um, so the thing that they say about the eight is you don't ever tell eight there's, there's some, an eight, there's something they can't do. Mm. Um, so once I got over that, um, the pain and, you know, of, oh my gosh, they're saying I can't do this. It kind of flipped into, no, this is going to happen and I'm going to fight until it does mm-hmm. because I know I'm supposed to be a mother. And, um, so I find, find another doctor who says, no, I think we can, I think we can make this happen. And so he's the one who did the laparoscopy. Um, he had done, we did Clomid. Um, were you ever, have you done Clomid? I I haven't done Clomid, but it's been suggested. Okay. Um, in my experience, um, Clomid just exacerbated the already fragile emotional state that Mm -hmm. I was in. My hormones were all over the map. Um, so I was either sobbing in a corner or screaming at my husband or, you know, so that really kind of heightened our, our 
you know, where our problems were in our marriage, mm-hmm. it really, really heightened um, that time. Um, so, so we do the laparoscopy. That's all. That's okay. Okay. And, and make a decision. I can't do Clomid anymore. I'm going to end up back in the hospital yep. if I continue. So they thought you weren't ovulating. That's why they right. prescribed Clomid. Yeah. Yep. Cause yep. I am ovulating. Yeah. We're getting pregnant. I'm just not able to sustain a pregnancy. Yeah. So, um, for anyone out there who doesn't understand what Clomid is, it helps to, um, it makes you ovulate. So yeah. a lot of people can get pregnant with twins um, because you kind of hype, you can hyper ovulate, yep. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it definitely causes kind of a roller coaster of hormones. Yeah. 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 And when you're, and when you're already in this place of, you know, clinical depression and, you know, heightened hormones really don't help, yeah. help that um, very much. Um so I don't, I don't remember the exact timing after the surgery that I got pregnant again, but I did, um, I did get pregnant again, um, and miscarried within the first six weeks. Mm. Um, this happened, um, so the initial laparoscopy, you know, for, that was first miscarriage and there were four more miscarriages, um, over this, you know, next couple of year time frame, And by this point, my, you know, kind of faulty understanding of, um, how God works. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I really am just newly kind of developing, you know, an understanding in theology for, for who God is and how he works. And, um, so my brain says, maybe we're not supposed, maybe Nathan and I aren't supposed to be together because if we were supposed to be together, this wouldn't be happening. And we don't want to, we don't want to sleep in the same bed. We don't want to talk to each other. Um, we're both spending all of our free time apart and, um, sit down and make a decision. It's time for a divorce. We wrote down, um, what little assets we had at that age. Here's who's going to take what very cold, very emotionless, um, and, um, you know, just had decided it was over. It wasn't worth to both of us. It wasn't worth what this, what it was costing, um, for us to stay married. Um, I was in a, I was engaged in, um, I, I would call it a, maybe an emotional affair. Um, and, um, I had, so I, in my heart, I had already, kind of left Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, Nathan had left me, you know, emotionally mm-hmm. too. And, and so, um, we just were both numb by that point. Um, that's so powerful to hear you say that because now I've only know, known you and Nathan now, like in the last year, really, we've become really close yeah. and knowing how strong you both are, separately and together, it's just almost impossible to imagine that you were at that point of literally like writing your assets, preparing for divorce. And that's such a powerful testimony to, um, just kind of the, the strength and resilience of getting through hardship and the way God works in mysterious ways. Very mysterious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very mysterious ways. Um, and I had, I had confessed the, um, 
the, you know, affair to him. And, um, I think that that was post that the divorce conversation. Um, I think that was really the time when we, we both acknowledged what there was for us to lose. I think up until then we had only, it was only in our heads, Mm -hmm. you know, it was all, it was all, um, it was all so emotionless and heartless. Um, it wasn't until that conversation where I think he really saw I've lost my wife and I really saw I've, I've left my husband and, um, I don't know. I don't know that it was that day. I know that there was, um, you know, there was a time when, um, the two of us, you know, in, in the midst of all this emotion and, and, um, you know, what was going on, um, made love and, um, however many weeks later, um, found out I was pregnant again, Mm. still thinking divorce is probably likely, but we'll go to counseling. Wow. Um, and then I'm pregnant and I knew in my heart this time was different. Um, I just knew, I knew that something had changed. Um, by this point they made the, the progesterone connection. Mm. So I started getting progesterone supplements, um, pretty early on in the pregnancy and we made it through the first trimester for the first time. Mm. And we, you know, it was like, we're home free and we're, and we're reconnecting and we're, and we're doing the hard work of rebuilding all of what we had both broken along the way. Um, you know, because we have to now we have to, we had a, we had a reason, um, to fight for our marriage now. Um, I think before that we didn't feel like there was a reason to fight anymore. So we're through the first trimester and I go to, um, what was called maternal fetal medicine. It was a high risk uh, pregnancy doctor. Um, because at this point we're on pregnancy number five. So my mom, this is the strange thing about this day is this is the only appointment that Nathan missed. Nathan Mm -hmm. was at every single appointment with me and had some sort of meeting or something. He just couldn't attend this, this appointment. So my mom's there with me and we're in the ultrasound room and everybody's happy and chatting and, you know, we're going to find out the gender of this baby and the ultrasound tech, my mom's chatting away and the ultrasound tech or tech, excuse me. Um, she, something's wrong. You know, I can just feel there's something about her face. You've been in that situation before. Mm -hmm. You just know that, that something isn't right. And they can't say anything, which makes it so much worse. Yes. Yes. So the ultrasound tech says it's a girl. I can see it's a girl. And, and my mom is so excited, you know, and she's bubbling and, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful, Jess. And, you know, and I'm just uh, analyzing the room. Something's wrong. She says, okay, you can go ahead and get dressed and we'll take you in to talk to the doctor. So we go and sit down with the doc, sit down, wait for the doctor. And I told my mom, something's wrong, mom, I can feel it. And he comes in and he, um, informs us that our, our daughter, um, has 
Dandy Walker syndrome. Um, so it's this really rare disease um, impacts the the brain. Hydrocephalus is usually a part of it. Um, these children, if they survive, usually are in wheelchairs. There's a whole lot of developmental issues. Um, so he says there's a 25% chance of survival. And within that, there's a 5% chance that she will live a normal life. Mm. And he follows that with, if you weren't so far along, I would recommend a medical abortion. Mm. So this fifth pregnancy, this, that I'm finally going to have this baby, you know, finally going to get to this point and she's sick, you know, and very, very sick. Like a good eight does. I, I just decided we're going to fight because we had to wrestle. Um, we had to wrestle with this, the decision when, when Nathan and I got to talk through it and really research what this meant, we had to wrestle with, so this baby is likely not going to survive. So do we, do we just keep going? Like I'm pregnant and everything's normal or do we somehow try to pretend that I don't have this little girl growing inside of me because she probably isn't going to make it here with us? Um, and we just decided to, we decided to do it all. Um, we named her Ava and, um, Ava had a nursery full of butterflies and it's really special uh, because I didn't know how significant those butterflies were going to be um, later on and had a baby shower and did all of, you know, all of what you do when you're pregnant. And we went for weekly um, NST, non-stress tests um, to, to keep an eye on her, how things were going. Um, they found, um, they found some heart issues along with brain issues. So the expectation was when Ava was born, she was going to have to go to the university of Michigan, um, within 24 hours for brain and heart surgery. Wow. So preparing for that, preparing for what kind of uh, potentially in-home nursing care she was going to require. And, and to Nathan and I, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. We were, we were ready to do whatever we had to do, um, for our Ava girl. And, um, so at 39 weeks, um, they were going to induce labor because of the surgeries and things. They had kind of determined we got to this point where it was getting dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the surgeries needed to happen for her and went in, um, on a, I think it was a Wednesday, went in on Wednesday. We're supposed to be induced on Thursday and had a non-stress test and they couldn't find Ava's heartbeat mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so we, you know, went into the doc, went into the room out of the non-stress test room and went in and sat and just waited for the doctor to come in, just praying he was going to tell us something different that, that maybe it was the machine, maybe it was something. And they had looked and looked and looked and, um, he came in and he said, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, she's gone. And I begged for a C-section at that time because the idea of going through labor and having to, to endure all of that pain alongside of the heartbreak and pain that we were feeling felt like just too much, you know? Um, 
And my doctor said, I'll do it if you absolutely need me to. If that's what you need to do, that's what I'll do. But I really would prefer not to for your, for future pregnancies, because we're going to get pregnant again and, and it's going to make it harder later on, you know, recovery time and all that. And I said, okay, I can do it. He said, we'll make you as comfortable as possible. So we, we went to the hospital and, um, just waited. And I remember people coming in and out. There were a lot of people around, um, a lot of commotion around. And I kind of just wanted to kind of just like go into this little cocoon. And that wasn't what was there, you know, at that time, um, because we had so many people who loved and cared about us and wanted to be there, you know, to support us. Um, I remember my, uh, my best friend, Jen coming up, um, she lived almost two hours away and she and her husband, you know, drove up and, um, she read the most beautiful Khalil Gibran poem to me and just laid in the bed with me and cried with me. And that was so helpful in that moment, you know, just not brushing over what was happening, but really just, she was the one I felt like was just right there in the middle of it, you know? Um, yeah. And so we, they gave me, um, they gave me something for sleep, um, gave me pain medication and, um, woke up and, you know, slept for a couple of hours and woke up and it was time to deliver Ava. Um, and, and it was, they made it easy, you know, they made it easy on us. Um, she, <laughs> she came um, very easily into the world. And, um, she had these beautiful, big pouty lips and pointy little tips on her ears and all of this, um, really thick, curly black hair. And she was so beautiful. And also I could see how sick she was, you know, I could see it. Um, And I felt like in that there, I had so much peace in that moment of holding her. And, um, I felt like in that moment, I had this understanding of, of God that I'd never imagined before. Um, this tiny little girl had healed my marriage and brought us so much joy. And, and now and now she is perfect and whole in a way that I knew she, I could look at her and know she would have never been here and all of the pain and suffering of the surgeries and, and all of that to still never live a normal life. Um, it felt like in that moment, it felt like this is grace. This is grace for her and grace for us. Um, My biggest regret in that moment um, was that I didn't kiss her. Mm. I wanted to kiss her, but what had already happened with her skin scared me. And 
Um, and it was all such a whirlwind um, of, you know, my parents were there and, you know, and held her and, um, you know, and, and tried to do whatever they could to protect us. And Nathan's parents and, and grandparents and, you know, everybody just, everybody was there surrounding us. Um, and they took her and, and, you know, dressed her and bathed her and took a couple of pictures. Um, but that, and then, and then she was gone. Um, and I kept thinking, I just wanted to kiss her. Um, so I think that, um, we, my, my, boys and I were talking about regret recently. What do you, what do you regret? And I said, that's, that's my biggest in life. My, my biggest regret is not kissing her. Um, we, you know, we stayed in the hospital the normal amount of, you know, I think we went home that night or that I, you wow. Know, I, it was fast. Um, I, I struggle to remember the time frames, but I remember, I think it was that night because we had to go home and pick, um, something for her to be buried in because we had a funeral and, um, and everything, which my parents so graciously handled all of that for us. Um, my mom and I went to pick out her little tombstone, um, and there was one that had butterflies carved on it. And I knew, that was it. It was, it was, had to be the butterfly one. Um, so we had a funeral for her. They arranged everything, um, like that next day, it was all already done. Um, everybody, all of our friends and family came, um, our best friend, Laura came with this beautiful poem and basket full of things. And, you know, Jen cleaned up and organized my house and my aunt Sharon and aunt Jan came and filled the house with food and, you know, just the way, all those little ways people care for you in the, in that time, um, is really beautiful. And I wrote, I wrote Ava a letter that, um, that I can't remember who read it at the funeral now, but, um, it might've been Jen that read it at the funeral and, um, and my promise to her was that I would, that I would be the kind of mother that would make her proud. Um, the kind of woman that would make her proud and, and that I, and that I would be with her again someday. And, um, yeah, so I hope I'm doing that. You are doing that. Doesn't that make it, um, doesn't it make own death less scary? The idea of of being reunited with our children. Absolutely. I had that same feeling of, yeah, I'll, I'll see you again one day. And it makes it so much less scary. It just, because in those moments, um, you know, along with losing someone, you in a certain way lose yourself. And I think for me, it was kind of the death of my ego, at least momentarily. And yeah. our ego is really what I think what keeps us afraid of death because yeah. it's like, oh, I don't want to die. I'm, I'm too important or I'm too right, great, you know? Right. Yeah. And once, yeah. once all of that, you know, dies in those moments, you kind of realize, or at least I realized I don't really fear death in the same way. 
I fear the way that I might die and kind of, you know, those unexpected reality, the pain Mm -hmm. of it, but actually being dead doesn't scare me. No, me either. Um, Because we've had those powerful spiritual moments with our children who weren't, you know, only, only were alive inside of us. Yeah. Um, And you realize there's some animating force that lives on even when the physical body isn't here anymore. Um, So it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I was thinking about while you were talking about the butterflies mm-hmm. is how my symbol with Ellis has become rainbows. Yeah. Um, and I've told that story on this podcast. It's in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, I want to hear you talk about how your, um, the meaning of, of butterflies became more significant to you. Okay. Um, but I'm also curious, what is your definition of a rainbow baby? Because you've had so many kind of different experiences mm. of of birth and pregnancy and loss and um, and having children. That that's an interesting question. I you know rainbows to me have always been a reminder of God's covenant with His people, and so it's always been representative of a promise to me. And I've seen rainbows at different times in my life where I was looking for a reminder of different promises that I know that I, that I felt from God. And so I would say, um, in my mind, it's, it's a reminder of the, this these rainbow babies, um, are these, they're these promises from God, these, um, and I think we all have them in, in different ways. Mine have, mine have, you know, come in the form of, um, two very healthy little boys that I gave birth to and one incredible little girl that I didn't give birth to. And every one of them is a rainbow baby in my mind, a fulfillment of a promise and covenant that I felt, you know, between God and I. So talk about the butterflies. Um, so, so we had the obvious, you know, the whole nursery is butterflies the, the tombstone is butterflies. And, um, that was, that was just this sense that I had when I would see one, it was this immediate, my little girl, you know, my Ava girl. And, um, I was at a, uh, my first woman's ministry retreat, uh, when we moved to Texas and went into, um, a class on spiritual breathing. And this was 10 years after maybe eight years after Ava, probably closer to eight years, I guess, after Ava died. Um, and, and she's leading us through this, you know, meditation. Um, imagine, you know, imagine God's a color. What color is God to you? And I'm sitting there fidgeting because I'm not a very meditative person, (laughs) as you can see sitting next to me. Um, and knowing me, um, and I'm kind of like, why did I come in here? This is really boring. I don't see anything. God's a color. What color would God be? And trying really hard. And I sit back and I, it was like a window was opened. And I see this, I see this beautiful field of flowers. And um, 
water and sunshine, the, the most beautiful sunlight radiating all over everything. And, um, and I see a little girl with long black hair and she's wearing the same dress that I buried Ava in and, and she's dancing. And every time she moves, butterflies are flying everywhere. And, um, and I saw a man with her and, and he's spinning her around and they're laughing. And I was in so much awe and shock and nothing like this had ever happened to me before or anyone that had ever expressed something had happened like this before. And so I didn't even know what to do once it was, it, it was like, then the window closed and, and the tears, you know, when I opened my eyes, the tears had nearly soaked my shirt. Mm. Um, and I went into the bathroom and just was trying to compose myself and figure it out, figure out what happened. And then your rational mind sets in and, and you're going, okay, what did, what did you just, what did you just imagine? No, that didn't actually happen. And I remember getting home and asking Nathan if we could go to dinner because I had something really significant I needed to share with him. And it, and I didn't tell anybody at the retreat what had happened. And when I spoke it to him, I knew it was real. And when I saw his reaction to me, because he, you know, Nathan, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, he's a very analytical uh, brain and his reaction, I knew it was real mm-hmm. um, to have this gift of seeing my little girl dancing in the butterflies, whole and healthy and perfect with who I, you know, believe to be Jesus um, was, was unlike any gift I've ever, you know, it was such a gift. Um, and a gift that I, I, I still need to learn how to share better, you know, with people. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So talk about how long it was until you guys decided that you were ready to try again. Okay. And, um, what that experience was like, how long it took until you got pregnant. Okay. Um, I know you had more miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Ava was born May 31st, 2006. And, um, I don't get the timing right on most of the miscarriages, but the one, um, there was one in October. That one, that one I think was, probably the hardest of all of the miscarriages, uh, for me, because you get this, you get this thought in your head that there are these things that can't happen. Right. Right. So baby number five after four miscarriages can't be stillborn. Yep. Well, that just happened. Well, surely the next pregnancy is going to be a healthy, viable, you know, baby. And so I think that's why the, the, the miscarriage that October shook me more than any of the others, um, because of this, this economy I'd created in my Mm -hmm. head of, Mm -hmm. of things that, you know, can and can't happen. And certainly that's not going to happen. And here we are with another miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to think of it as tragedy doesn't earn you immunity points. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it should. 
Yes, it should. <laughs> Very much so yeah, it should. No. Um, yeah. I like that better than God only gives you what you can handle. Uh, yeah, I, I hate that phrase. <laughs> Me too. I hate it. <laughs> Me too. Um, so yeah, so we lost another baby in October. And by that time, I really, it just went into more of this numb state. Um, I can I found, relate to that. Yeah. I found out I was pregnant again late December, I think it was. Um, and it was like, meh. Okay. The test is positive. Okay. My HCG is going up. Okay, I'm taking the progesterone, but all of this is, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And we were trucking along, you know, everything was going right, you know, did the, um, made it through the first trimester, did the, you know, the gender, you know, ultrasound, we were at, you know, the maternal fetal medicine again, and, and they're just happy as can be with how everything is going. Um, I ended up having gestational diabetes um, found, you know, was, was diagnosed with that. Um, so they were expecting a very large baby, um, based on what measurements and things were. Um, but it was, it was easy. It was, it was, you know, not easy mentally or emotionally by any means. Um, every day I looked for, you know, some sign of miscarriage or, you know, the poor office, ladies at the doctor, you know, at the doctor's office, I would call anytime I didn't feel him kicking for him. It was a boy this time, (laughs) um, him kicking for a couple hours. I panicked, um, because I just thought for, you know, I'm going to lose this one too, Mm -hmm. was in that constant state of fear and tension and, and, um, and just kind of agony, um, going through that, that whole, um, nine months. Did you have professional help during that time? Were you seeing a counselor or how did you cope with those feelings of fear? You know, I didn't. And I, um, I really wasn't, I don't, I don't think I was well equipped at that time. Um, more than, you know, having, having a stable home life, you know, that Nathan and I were building together, a wonderful family, great friends, um, and a, and a supportive church community you know, that was, that was the extent, mm-hmm. which is a lot mm-hmm. and a lot more than a lot of people have. Sure. Um, and I'm, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, so we got to, um, my, my sister-in-law was also pregnant at the time. Um, just before me, she had found out she was pregnant and which is really hard as I'm sure you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go through that kind of loss and then somebody tells you they're pregnant and like they might've thought about having a baby, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I just kept praying for joy for them Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, peace with, with that. I had cousins around me who were, who had just had, um, kids, right. Actually, one of them was born two weeks before Ava. Mm. So a lot of connection to, oh, she would have looked like this right. now. Um, um, which was hard after that. Um, well, it's hard to see people just kind of blissfully enjoying yeah. their pregnancies. And, yeah. um, of course you want that for them, but you want it for yourself and, and it seems impossible right. to have that after right. what you've gone through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, I, because the first pregnancy was what I found out about it the way I did and found out I lost the baby right away too. I never had 
I never had the experience of this big reveal that I'm pregnant or gender or any of that. Because if we got to gender, it was Ava's story or who knew with the next baby, you know, all of that fear around that. So yeah, I always, it, it's always this kind of thing that you're holding joy for the other person and so much pain because you would love to experience that joy too. Um, so Luca was born and he was three weeks early and I, and I was having, you know, labor pains and, um, and, you know, went to the hospital and they said, yeah, you're, you know, he's coming early. And we had, um, my best friend, Jen and my parents, and they were all in the room, um, that day and everybody's just anxiously waiting. Um, we chose to name him Luca. Um, my family's got Italian, you know, heritage and Luca means bringer of light. And, we had already seen through this pregnancy how much joy and light and love was around us and around him and his coming. And, um, and it was just the easiest, um, delivery. Everything was easy. Um, we had Pearl Jam playing in the room, of course, (laughs) because we had to, um, and, um, he was born to the song given to fly (laughs) and, And, um, and he was just perfect and easy and, and beautiful and healthy. And the very first thing I said to Luca when he was born after crying and holding him and just staring at him, this healthy person, um, I said, wherever you want to go to college, I will follow you there because I will never leave you. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was like, I I will never leave your side. I love you so much. Sorry, Luca. Um, and yeah, and it was, and it was wonderful. And, um, and he was here, you know, and, and all of the, all of the pain and suffering and agony, it didn't, it didn't disappear, but it almost felt like it made a little bit of sense. If that, if that makes sense, um, not, maybe not made sense, but it was like, okay, if that's what it took to get to him, then I'll do it all over again if I have to. Um, and we had, so Luca was number seven. Um, I lost two more, I had two more miscarriages after Luca. And by this time, a lot of people were saying you probably should stop. Um, I didn't share this earlier, but I wanted to have six kids. That Mm -hmm. was my dream. Um, I, I, you know, just always imagine myself having this circus that followed me around everywhere. And Nathan said, I'll have one. (laughs) And I said, fine, I'll settle at three. (laughs) And the funny part about our story that, that we'll talk about later is that his response to I'll have three was, all right, I'll give you two, but I don't know who you're going to have the third one with. Interesting. Uh Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, so two miscarriages after Luca and everybody's saying, it's time to quit. And I've said, it's not, I'm, I'm, I know it's not. Um, thankfully I followed that instinct and, um, got pregnant with my Julian and, um, had a lot of trouble early on with Julian, um, different pains and some spotting and some, you know, just some really troublesome things were going on in my body by this point. And my poor body has been through so much trauma. Um, 
so I was on bed rest with Julian for seven months of the pregnancy. Oh my gosh. Um, and thankfully with, you know, a good, you know, good work support and awesome family support, you know, cause Luca was only, um, Luca was only two, you know, 18 months to two during this time. Wow. Um, and you know, my mom was incredible taking care of Luca and Nathan taking care of Luca and I at home. And, you know, it was a really, really difficult time of, it's hard enough to be pregnant after you've lost, but then to add to it, you also just have to lay there. Yeah. You, you know how distract much, yourself. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know how difficult it is to sit still yeah. in, in that, you know, fear. Mm-hmm. And so to have to sit still in that fear for seven months was, um, was really a challenge. Wow. Um, and I was, it was modified bed rest. So I could, it, I didn't have to be laying flat, but I could, I just always had to be sitting. Wow. I could ride in a car. I could sit on a stool in the kitchen if I wanted to cook dinner, which I very, that was one of my favorite things to do. Or if I wanted to sit at the table and paint or something with Luca. Um, but it was very, very limited to, to what, that. What were they worried was going to happen? I, that there was going to be another miscarriage okay. or another loss. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember at this time the, you know, the medical side of what was going on. Um, but in my mind, it was like, whatever I need sure. to do. Yeah. If I've got to lay flat for seven months to keep him safe, then that's what I do. Yeah. Um, so Julian, um, we, I went into labor early again with Julian and, um, I had, I had some symptoms of preeclampsia. Um, so really severe headache and my blood pressure had skyrocketed. Um, they sent me to, um, the St. Vincent's Catholic hospital in Toledo, Ohio, and I was scheduled to deliver Julian at Toledo hospital. Um, went into the St. St. V's for the, the preeclampsia and, um, loved the care I received there. They were just really, really good to me. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to switch to that hospital. I really like the way I was taken care of here. Um, so I'm in, and I, and I tell you that to, because I'm such a firm believer in following whatever those instincts and intuitions are that you have. Um, and have just always really tried to listen to that. Um, so I'm at the St. Vincent's hospital with Julian, you know, pregnant, you know, in labor, excuse me, with Julian and the nurse comes in and she does one more check before they're going to, um, they're going to induce labor. Um, I had just some leaking, um, amniotic. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Um, amniotic fluid. Um, and she says, I'm just going to do one more check. And she says, something feels different. I'm going to grab the ultrasound machine. So she, she comes in with the ultrasound machine. Thankfully she did because Julian had somehow moved his arms in a way that they said if they would have fully induced labor, um, he, he likely wouldn't have survived. Um, it became this emergency situation. And so emergency C-section and, um, we go, we go to have the C-section and I look up and my doctor is on the table and on above me (laughs) and he keeps saying, Oh, this one's going to be a little stinker. He just keeps saying over and over again, he did. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't get him out. And um, while they have you already, um, they've cut you open Uh and they can't get him out. Yep. 
And, and so I'm just, you know, you're just stuck there laying on this table and I'm just praying, God, please keep him safe. Yeah. Please keep him safe. And, and they get him out and they're cleaning him up. And we hadn't, we didn't chosen his name yet. It, but in the middle of the night, Julian was on our list in the middle of the night. I thought he's going to be a Julian. And, um, and so they take him over and he's still not crying. And I'm just, you know, just frozen and paralyzed with fear that he's not going to be okay. And, um, and he cries and, and I'm praying, God, I don't care what he looks like. You know, all these things yeah. that you go through yeah. as if you're like bargaining, right. you know, right. God, I don't care what he looks like. Please just, please make him okay. And, and Nathan brings him over and he is the most perfect, beautiful thing mm-hmm. I've ever seen. You know, just this beautiful skin and beautiful everything. And, and he is in fact very much a little stinker. It really, his, his birth story is much like his personality, you know, unlike most people you'll ever meet and incredible and, and yeah. Um, and, and I knew when we got through the first trimester with Julian, this was the last time 10 and, and I'm done. Um, and when they said emergency C-section, I said, great. Cause we were going to have, we were going to do a tubal so we can just do it at the same time. And they said, sorry, this is a Catholic hospital. So that's not going to be able, we don't do that here. Mm. Um, and so I had a, uh, Julian was born in January, had a tubal in February and ended up with, um, some really severe scar tissue. This ovarian cysts were back full force and had a full hysterectomy that following October. Wow. Um, at 28 years old. So that's uh, three surgeries in one year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in the in the end of you know, the end of a long, long time of yeah. you know pain and and struggle and um, it was a very that was a very freeing time to know. Okay, you fought and and prayed and and you know and here you are and you know. It was, it was a really good, healthy, you know, healing time mm-hmm. for me. Just to see um, an end. Yeah. That you yes. also had, a, you had a choice. You made that yeah. choice, essentially. Yes. Um, yeah. Whereas in the beginning, you don't see an end and you yeah. don't know what the journey is going to look yeah. like. So I can imagine how that would be a real sense of freedom. Yeah. Um, but there's still more to your story. <laughs> Not quite an end. I know. <laughs> the, and we're already at um, about an hour here. So um, you're going to have to tune in to the next episode <laughs> to hear the second part of Jess's story, which is all about the adoption of her daughter, Shiloh. Yeah. Um, and it's a really um, equally powerful and um, tenuous story. Yeah. Um, so your struggle did not end, unfortunately, um, with your pregnancies. Yeah. Um, and, but because you're an eight, you persevered. That's, that's <laughs> people said yes. there was something that wasn't possible yes. again. And yeah. So there is a, yeah. a happy ending yeah. to the story. Yeah. Um, or maybe ending is not the right word, but a, a, happy know. addition, a happy addition. Yeah. Yes. More rainbow babies. Yes. Yeah. I hope this episode was meaningful for you. To connect with me, you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on Instagram. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss. 
whether they are trying to conceive, currently pregnant, or parenting after loss. And please subscribe and review this podcast. Your feedback will help shape this podcast and will also help others to find it. Stay tuned for the next two episodes, where I'll give an update to our IVF journey and also share part two of Jess's story. I'm Taylor Bates. Thank you so much for listening.